Hey, it's Dave Broadbeck here, your friendly neighborhood statistics professor. So this is a lecture for the 22, winter 22 academic year, our term, um, and it is Psychology 3256, Advanced Univariate Statistics. We used to call this course um, Design and Analysis 1, which is clearly the stupidest course name ever had by any university for a course. So we, we changed it. Uh, so it's advanced university statistics. It's mostly just analysis of variance. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble. I hope you enjoy this. It's an advanced stats course. The chance of you enjoying it is vanishingly small, but I hope it's instructive. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ukrainian chorus Dumka of New York. Live from New York, it's Saturday right. night. So, as we were talking about last time, or if you're watching this on YouTube, merely seconds ago, so predicting, we're, we're picking our, our, our predictors and for a model, and we're looking at the assumptions of the model of regression in general. So there's no mention of interactions, and I mentioned this, as I, as I said, of course, just moments ago on YouTube or two days ago in class. So you could always put something in, x1, x2. Hard to know what that term should be. Um, exploratory data analysis might be the key. It's often the key. I think I've been harping on that since day one. So let's, yes, let's select some predictors. So in other words, these are the x variables. What variables do you want to use? These are the x variables. So. Do you want to have qualitative things? So we can use qualitative variables all the time in an analysis variance situation, right? Group one, group two, group three, it doesn't matter what the ones and twos and threes are. It's a little more difficult here because we're building an equation. So how are we supposed to, let's say we're using hair color. Let's just make it simple and say there are four hair colors. One, brown, black, red. 
And I know it varies and blah, blah, blah. And this gets here all very special. It's life's a rich tapestry. But let's say we have four other colors, okay? To just make the example easy. How do you code that? Like, you're trying to build an equation. How are you going to put What number is red? I don't know. That's a hard thing to code. If it's a binary thing, it's easy. So if we were coding, Oh, I don't know, psych students or not. Well, you get one if you're a psych student, because your level of psych studentness is one. And then if you're not one, zero, because you're zero of a psych student. This can give us a hint as to what to do with other qualitative variables, like, let's say, hair color. Well, you're going to code this as I mentioned, 0 and 1, not 1 and 2. It's very tempting for some reason to code things as 1 and 2. And you wouldn't want to do that because a psych student is not twice the psych student that a non psych student is. Right? The numbers have to mean something. So, but 1 and 0 actually makes sense. So, this can give us a hint actually how to deal with a qualitative variable. Let's say, like hair color. What we can do is we can do what's called dummy coding. And do a quick picture of that. So if we were just doing hair color and we were doing something that wasn't involving building a mathematical, well not a mathematical model, but an equation, um, we would just use brown, black, red, blood, and bees. We can't do that. So instead, if we have four hair colors, let's have four variables. We'll have a variable called brown, and a variable called black, and a variable called blonde, and a variable called red. Now, how do you code someone's hair color? So subject variable, and the first subject will be me. I am not, I do not have brown hair, I do not have black hair, I do have blonde hair, I do not have red hair. So now I've got four variables. So I'm 0, 0, 1, 0. Because I have 0 on black, 0 on brown, 1 on blonde, 0 on red. OK? So if somebody had red hair, we'd go 0, 0, 0, 1. If someone has brown hair, we go 1, 0, 0, 0. Black hair, 0, 1, 0, 0. Make sense? So this is a way we can actually get around this. It's actually, I don't know who came up with it. It's very clever. It's very clever. And for some reason, when this was taught to me, I couldn't get my head around it. Like, I really couldn't. I sat there staring at it going, I don't understand this. But I'm supposed to be the kid who knows statistics. Don't put your hand up. Don't put your, don't ever act like that. Does everybody get this is what I'm asking you. I didn't get it when the first time it was taught to me. Does that make some sense? So you're saying I'm a better teacher than my stats teacher. Freaking right I am. Okay. Or you're all smarter than I am. I choose to believe not that. But I'm a great teacher and I'm smarter than all of you people. So, that's a joke. I'm smarter than most of you. You guys know I'm kidding around, right? Hard to tell with the mask on. You can't see the sarcastic look on my face as much, I guess. Okay. So that makes sense? It's very cool, actually. 
I was, in fact, yesterday I had a meeting with one of my owner's uh, students and she was putting her data together for analysis and she had done dummy coding, but she shouldn't have. It was really kind of funny. I was looking at her and I was literally looking over these notes, eh? And just before talking to her, because I know oh, this is coming up. And I was looking at it going, no, that's right. Oh, that's right, that's right. No, it's wrong. You don't need to be dummy coding what you're doing. She's not building the regression model. But I got just confused. I was looking at it. I'm sure that gives you a great deal of confidence in my ability if I just look at something confused after I've told you that I didn't get something I'm now teaching you. Probably I'll ask you for your money back afterwards. Watch out for Likert scales. Psychologists, uh, behavioral scientists in general, are, we love Likert scales, don't we? Right? One, we strongly disagree. Seven, we strongly agree. Four is neutral. On a scale of one to seven, we love that stuff. And we treat it like those numbers, like the gap between one and two is the same as the gap between six and seven. I'd be really careful in using a Likert scale in a regression model. You can do it, but you better be damned. It better be very defensible that the differences between the intervals are the same size. And that's a hard thing to know. That makes sense? All right. Experimental variables can be great. There's never going to be any multicollinearity between two variables that are 0 and 1, and you assign them. So if we had a, a case where we have, we've assigned people to groups. And you can actually look at the numbers. And then we have numbers that are meaningful. Then it's right, we, you know, we can use experimental variable, it's wonderful. Because we can be sure that people can't have level one and level two of A. So that's wonderful. Now you wouldn't get level one and two unless those numbers are meaningful, you'd probably code to zeros and ones. Okay, questions? All right. So what we're gonna do eventually is build a model. We're going to build a mathematical model, a regression model, that's going to predict our y. That's what we're just all we're trying to do. So, how do you choose the variables that go into your model? Because you might have, I mentioned the other day, 23 variables, and you don't want a 23 variable model. That's kind of complicated. You probably want something, I don't know, like four or five variables max, typically. How do you choose which ones to use? This is much different from analysis of variance. We're actually making a prediction with multiple regression. And we're saying that the world works like this, that a combination of this and this and this and this and this equals this. That's not what we do with ANOVA. What do we do with ANOVA? We try to find out, is there a significant effect of a variable? Right? That's not what we are doing here. We're trying to say all this together is it a useful way to predict something. There are obviously related questions. Because you usually start out with a lot of variables. Within an ANOVA situation, you might start out with, say, three independent variables, or two. You know, if you watch the honors thesis conference, there'll be two meetings like that. Uh, not next Friday, but the one after, the one after that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the student, my students, two of them have two variable designs, and one has a one variable design. I like simple designs. And they're all analysis variants. Uh, sorry. Two of the three analysis variants, one's chi-squared. 
with, with progression, you might start with 20 or 30 or 50 variables. And you want to break, you know, get down to the point where you can say it's, it's a combination of these five and these four. Well, the first thing you could do is you could literally do all possible regressions. You could li literally look at every single conceivable model. Sure. So with a three-variable data set, so you've got an X1, an X2, and an X3, there are seven models. There's three one-variable models, right? X1, X2, X3. Then there are three two-variable models, X1, X2, X2, X3, and X1, X3. And then there's X1, X2, X3. Yeah, seven. I got it right. There's seven models. That's not so bad. I can look at all seven and go, which one's the best? That's easy. If there's four variables, it's 16. That's even still doable. That's going to be a lot of, and you know what? As much as I like doing things on screens, and I've got, you know, I mean, many of us now have dual monitor setups at home and all that stuff, this is a situation where I use paper. Maybe it's because I'm old, but it's hard to look at that many things at once when they're, all, when they're on screens. I, I prefer having the paper and literally spread it on the floor. I suddenly look like, you know, I'm on some TV show. That TV show number, remember that show? The guy used math to solve crimes? And you probably, you probably don't, you're right? You're small children. It's a good show. He actually used multiple regression in one episode. I loved it. It's like, oh, look, he's doing what he's doing. I know that math. Now, with 10, I don't know how many there are, but you know, let's say it's a zillion. And I told you the other day that one, an old assignment I used to use was give people a 23 variable data set and I'd say find the best model. And I also would always say them the same thing, please don't print, do all regressions. Because you're going to run out of everything, computer time, paper. And the first time I used that assignment was in 1992. I was a grad student, senior grad student, I was teaching this class at U of T. And because this class exists everywhere. And, yeah, I actually, I said to them, now specifically, everyone, please don't print out all the possible regression models. You will hang the entire U of T computer network. So guess what, like, half my students did? I kept getting these calls. Can I speak to Dave Broadback? Yep. This is the computer lab in Sitzna Hall here. Your students, oh, don't tell me they're doing that. Yeah, some of them are trying to print them all. Okay, uh, can you kill the genome? And of course, the guy who killed them and everything, he was just warning <laughs> And he said, okay, uh, now that shouldn't happen. I said, no, it shouldn't happen. I'm not actually stupid. I told them not to do it specifically. Then, like two days later, uh, is this a Professor Bryce? Yes, I'm just Well, your students are printing. I said, hey, no, tell them to stop. I told them not to do it. It's impossible. It's, it's trillions of possible models. I calculated, I figured this out one day, and if you did like one a minute, it's longer than the amount of time that there's been Earth. You can't. It's something crazy. Fit over 22. 23 minutes. So what do you do? Well, the first thing you can look at are residual plots. These can be very useful. Um, so this is all exploratory data maps. You can find anomalies with residual plots. 
So you can do a 23 variable model, just put them all in, that's fine if you feel like it, just say, don't say, and all the other ones as well. And then say, you say to SPSS or SAS or R or whatever stats package you're using, you say, and give me the residual plots. And it'll do that, that's always an option. And look at them and see if you see anything weird, like a weird anomaly, like you have one point that's way up here. Or you've got a curve, or like a cone, so if the prediction errors get bigger as the x variable gets bigger. Those are bad things. Nonlinear relationships, you're probably going to have to drop that variable. Like, okay, here's, I, I think, in fact, I think I, these are the same things I posted in, the, in our study group. This one here looks fine for x1, right? This one here for x3, as x3 gets bigger, the residuals get bigger. They should not be related at all, those two things. That's no good. Uh, here we've got, obviously, it under predicts and it over predicts. That's no good. And then finally, in the bottom right here, we've got a curve. You don't want a curve. What you want is the top left there, x1, which is something where you don't have any relationship between the residuals and the x value. Okay? And remember, there are two questions in the final about residual plots that involve literally looking at residual plots and interpreting them and saying, is this okay or is it not, and what's the problem? So again, starting from the top left, that one's fine. This one here, prediction error increases as x increases, no good. This one here, under predicts and over predicts, no good. This one here, under predicts, over predicts, under predicts, almost certainly occur, no good. So these are three variables, x3, x2, and x4, we wouldn't even use. We would throw these variables out if we're building a regression. And they're perfectly fine variables probably, but they, they, they aren't good, they heavily violate an assumption of regression here. That's not good. Make sense? Yeah. So one of the ways you can do this, you're thinking, well, we have computers, why don't we let a computer do it for us? Why don't we have some kind of algorithm that builds a model for us? That would be great. Yeah, let's do that. So there's a few algorithms I'm going to talk about. And these are all available in any stats package. So this automatic method or algorithm is called forward selection. And what it does is it starts with the x variable that has the highest r squared. In other words, it looks at the variable that explains the most variance. And it says, put that in the model. And then it keeps doing that. And then it adds the next variable that gives you the next biggest jump in r squared. until the jump in R squared is not big enough. And you're saying, that sounds very vague, Dave. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Because it is. Typically what I do is I just leave it to what the statistics package has as a default. And I go from there. How does the statistics package measure the biggest jump in R squared? Well, R squared is just a number it's just a variance estimate. Oh, look, it's our friend, the f-test. We're going to look at mean squared regression for x1 given x2 divided by mean squared regression for x1, x2. 
In other words, type 2 divided by the type 1 uh, uh, may be some mean squares. I, you know, I've never asked you this on a quiz or anything. All I'm saying is what it's showing is this is, the, this is a proportion of total extra variance explained. That's what this is measuring. And when that's small enough, this, it's called F star, because of the, the, the uh, asterisk. Um, if that's a big enough jump, it keeps going. Once that F star gets below a certain significance level, it stops. And then it spits it out, so here's your model. Okay. Let's do it the opposite way. Here's another algorithm. That's the opposite. It starts with all the variables in the model. So it literally does exactly the opposite. It puts it all the variables. So if it was that 23 variable data set, they all be in there. And it takes the, the one that has the least, the smallest R squared, and just takes it out. And it just keeps going. In other words, the smallest F star. And it just keeps going until it hits some threshold. Until it's like, oh no, that you took that out, that's too much. And it stops. It stops. Okay. Now, what if we could combine the two into something? Well, obviously we can. I've got a slide, I just said it, and you can write a name. It's called stepwise regression. You'll even see this sometimes used in papers. People will say, we use stepwise regression. No, you didn't. That's not, it's an algorithm, it's not a statistical analysis technique. And it drives me up a wall when people write that in their papers. It's like saying, and I've seen this too, we used SPSS to analyze the data. I don't care. So if you do it by hand, you're supposed to say, I did this myself in my head. No, of course. Anyway, that's an aside. So stepwise is interesting because what it does is it combines the two, which sounds good. It's going to be the best of both worlds. It goes forward. It starts by going forward. So it puts the one with the biggest R squared in. And it checks F star for each variable. So once it's got just one in, it says, OK, that's good. Now it's going to pick the next one. Now you have two variables. The neat thing that it does now is it then drops variables. So as, say, two come in, then it looks as if I take one of these out, is that OK? No, it takes away too much variance. OK, I have a third variable. Now that I have all three, if I take one of these out, is it OK? Is it still okay? No, no, let's put a fourth one in. Good. Let's put a fifth one in. Oh, now if I drop actually that third one, it's still, it's still good. And then it, so what it's doing is it's adding variables and removing variables as it goes. So each step adds or removes a variable. And there's a criteria set for adding and dropping. It's called the F to enter, or F star to enter, and F star to leave. Now the thing is, this is one of those cases where, again, probably messing with this is a problem. There's usually a default set. I wouldn't change the default in the software. F star to enter has to be greater than or equal to F star to leave, or it's going to get caught in a loop. It's going to put a variable in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, and it will stop. And this is something else that my students did in U of T. And literally hung up the entire U of T mainframe network in a 
uh, for the, the social science. Basically, for arts and sciences at U of T, all the computers were completely held up. There were different time, early 90s. Just don't mess with that. about these mod, these, these approaches, these automatic approaches, they only look at Fs. They only look at F to enter, F to leave, whatever. They're looking just at variance. They're not looking at residual plots. And I bet now that people are working on algorithms that actually can do this. They aren't available in regular stats packages, but I'm sure people who are smarter than I am can do such things. But these, these methods that are sort of standard things, forward selection, backward selection, or stepwise, most people go to stepwise. They don't tell you anything about the variables other than how much variance they're accounted for. They don't care about multicollinearity. They do indirectly, because if something doesn't add much because something it overlaps a lot with another variable, indirectly that's looking at multicollinearity. They actually don't look at it. They don't worry about it. Is the relationship linear or not? Nope, they don't care. They, they don't look at that. They can't. They're simply looking at have to enter or have to leave or both in the case of step one. So they're perfectly fine, but they aren't. They aren't the be all and the end all. As my old stats prof, I've told you about many times, Ian used to say. These methods will give you a model. They probably won't give you the best model. They will give you a model. It could be the best model, but usually it won't. Usually it'll just be a model. Here's an approach, and I've done this. I don't use regression very much, but I have. And here's what I've done. The first thing is I would start out with a correlation matrix and see if there's any variation, uh, sorry, uh, Multicollinearity. So, do any x variables, any predictors, do they share any variance with each other? And if they do, I want rid of them. One of them, probably the one that has the least correlation with y, I get rid of. So, I pick a subset of those of the variables that don't correlate too much with each other. And if, in that case, if I've got, let's say, five, five variables or four or three, I'd probably just run every possible regression. Because frankly, at that point, I can deal with 15 or 20 models. It's, it's annoying, but I'll see them all. Right, so I look at residual plots, it's even non-linear, that's easy. If it's bigger, even if it's not bigger, so I will take my subset and also try all the automatic methods. I'll try all three, forward selection, backward selection, and stepwise regression. Or if the subset's pretty big, I'll do that as well. I just can't do the look at all possible models. Let's see if they agree. They don't always agree, by the way. These, these algorithms, they literally don't always agree, which is kind of wild when you think about it. I, as I'm going, I'd be checking for outliers on residual plots. I'd be checking for 
curves, things like that. And then I'd put it away for like a week and do it again and see if I get the same results. This is just me. I'm not saying this is what you should do, but it's an approach that is, I'm, I'm, I'm just checking myself because there's no way I'm going to remember every step a week later. So I put the data away. I put this, it's like, I'll come back to this in a week. I'll do other work. But I come back to it. Do I agree with myself? Because, you know, as I think you can see here when we talked about today, there's a lot of real judgment calls here. There's not all oh, PS less than 105, done. There's a lot less of that. Look at that, that's the conclusion slide of the last topic. Right? Right? This is an extremely powerful technique regression. It's an extremely powerful technique. Think about this. I can take a bunch of data and I can say, I put all these things together and then I can say I can predict Y from this combination of axes. That's a pretty powerful technique. Watch out for multicollinearity. This is the thing a lot of people miss is the correlation of their X variables. So watch out for that, please. Try to violate the assumptions. And the assumptions aren't so bad really here. Um, Basically, it's linear relationships and that the residuals shouldn't be related at all to the x values. Those are the key things. So try not to violate the assumptions, you'll be fine. And just because it's an equation, it's very tempting when you see an equation, like I just said, right? Ah, I'm saying this plus this times this and times this, and this plus this times this plus this times this equals that. It's very tempting to say, so therefore, that causes that. That's not what you said. All right? That doesn't mean a thing. Just because it's an equation, don't assume you prove causation. It's extremely tempting when I see this equals this to say, oh, that means that causes that. It doesn't mean that. There's probably some causal connection. But remember, this is really a correlational technique, typically. And because of that, there is no assumption in any of the math that we've designed an experiment. So that's about experimental design. That's not about stats. Any questions? Good. Pretty cool. Actually finished. Now, we have two possibilities here. I have some slides that are a review that wrap things up, or we can save that till Tuesday. We can still do review Tuesday. It only takes about 10 minutes, but it's just a, a thing of some slides. You want me to do it now? Because I can.
So, um, the first thing is we always have assumptions. This is just some general things I've been thinking about. No matter it be an else variance or PCAS or, 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 or uh, regression, we always have simple random sample as one of our assumptions. We always have random sample of the population. Right? So simple random sample, and then of course random samples of the population. Oh, sorry, the population is a random sample. Um, yeah, that's basically the same thing. So we have a random samples. We have homogeneous variance is important always. Right? So the variance is different in different groups, things like that. Those assumptions are assumptions from the math. So a simple random sample or a random sample of the population is basically the same thing. Um, and if the population itself is random, that really shouldn't be a random sample of the population, the population is random. I'm sorry, geez, what am I saying? Not random, but normal. These assumptions we can actually violate. <laughs> we can't. We shouldn't violate homogeneity of variance too much, but we can violate it. We can violate random samples. We do it all the time. How often do you think when you're reading a paper that someone actually randomly sampled subjects? Never. Or hardly. Independence of events don't violate that. That's a key one. The, the events themselves, the observations, must be independent. We can't violate that. Can't violate that. Error is always normal and independent with a mean of zero and a variance of sigma squared to epsilon. As long as it's normal, sorry, as long as it's independent, we don't have to worry too much about the normality. The more it, these things go away from being normal, the more conservative the test gets, but it doesn't affect it very much at all. Okay? So that's something to pay attention to. That is one of the things that we have. If I was saying, like, what are some similarities and differences between all the different techniques, these, these assumptions are always there. We've talked about models, both in analysis of variance and regression. This is just straight ahead analysis of variance, mu plus tau plus epsilon, and here we've got uh, a very general case for regression. It could be multiple regression, it could be simple regression. But you'll note there's some similarities here as well. We both have a score, x or y hat, being a linear combination of some values and some error. And we have stuff that applies to everything, like mu, that's the grand, grand mean, or like b sub zero, that's the intersect. And then we have a series of effects, and then we have error. So like I said, the intercept is kind of like the brand mean. They're not that different from each other. In fact, um, when, you, when, when your computer does stats, it actually does multiple, does, sorry, does a NOVA with regression, because they're basically, uh, mathematically, they're, they're, they're the same thing. Like I said, they both have error. There's no interactions in regression. That's a big difference. 
There's no interaction. We have interactions in analysis variance. We don't have them in regression. And we can do nonlinear relationships in analysis variance. Analysis variance doesn't care about that. Regression does. That's another difference. So they're really the same in a lot of ways, but there, there's a couple of very important differences. statements when we do statistics. So we can make numerical statements with the universe without actually knowing anything about the universe. So we don't really know how the universe works as far as our data go. We know how the universe works as far as statistics go. So we have the central limit theorem, which is the bedrock of everything I'm talking about, of course. And if we have that, that thing, we have to know what, how our variables are distributed in the population. Well, you'd have to care. We don't know what the values are. We don't care. As long as things follow certain sets of rules about how randomness works, which they do, we can make probabilistic statements about how the universe works without knowing anything about the universe, other than the underlying math of the second limit, which is pretty freaking cool. It's an extremely powerful thing. How often are you able in your life to make a statement that you can give a number numerical probability to and be pretty sure you're right. But you know what? Even know what the probability is of being wrong. When you just say something, how often are you that sure of it when it's something that isn't like, I'm wearing shoes? When it's something like, I don't know, an election will turn out like this. Here's what the popular vote. We don't really have in Canada. It doesn't matter. I'm so tired of that. But anyway, here's how elections should turn out. Or here's what. Here's what would happen if we took all our masks off and started not caring about things like that. Here's how many people will die. We can make probabilistic statements. That's an amazingly powerful thing. But you also need very you need good research design. So you need to know what you're doing. And one of the, again, this ties back to during the pandemic. It's amazing, I don't know if you've noticed this, it's amazing how many people are experts in everything. Oh, lately they're not pandemic experts anymore. They're now military experts about the military of Ukraine and Russia. And they'll be experts about the next day, next week. People drive me insane. Especially weird when you actually have both those expertises, and you go, ah! um, So people that don't know what they're doing have taken some of these statistical techniques, and they don't actually know how they're, what they're doing. They have bad design. They come up with predictions that are wrong. They're just wrong. Right? So this has real global and local consequences, doing statistics right. It really does. I used to have to try to convince people that statistics was a valuable thing to know. 
even outside of you know doing research. And I think now in the last two years, we've probably I, I think the world has convinced us all that it's important to know this stuff because um, you know you have to make decisions. They have to be you have to make predictions. So those are sort of the, what I think are the big themes of the course. Any questions? No, I didn't hit record on this thing, so I'll have to use this audio. Ladies and gentlemen, the Ukrainian Chorus Dumka of New York. Saturday night. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right, giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B R O D B E C K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.